You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by a close friend and one that someone we admire enormously, Dr. Deborah Burks. Deborah, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Steve. Deborah's currently a senior fellow at President George W. Bush Presidential Center. She served as ambassador for global health and coordinator of the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR, from April of 2014, appointed during President Obama, through January 2021. Uh, and she served under President Trump as the response coordinator for the White House COVID-19 Task Force. She served in that role from March 2nd of 2020 until January 2021. Let me say a few words about sort of where I see things today and then ask you to offer your thoughts on where this, what this phase is. It seems to me we've entered a period of accelerating big changes. We've got a surge of the Delta variant underway. It's now over 85% of the new infections. The numbers are rising. We're up to 57,000 cases of COVID per day. We were down to 11, 12,000 in early June. There are projections that we could get very high numbers in September, over 200,000 cases per day. Deaths are expected to rise significantly in this period. We're in a period of change in our, sci- in our scientific understanding of what this Delta variant is as to how pernicious it is in terms of the scope of breakthrough infections of people who are vaccinated and the possibility of the vaccinated passing it on to others. A huge change of thinking about what is this virus we're dealing with and what it's capable of doing. We're, we're coming to terms with the reality that in this emergency, 30% of Americans are shunning vaccines. Some of this is a function of access problems. 100 million people unvaccinated. It's a massive kindling for the Delta variant. A lot of the hesitancy, refusal, and access problems are compounded by political culture, disinformation, geography, misinformation, People are struggling with that, trying to overcome that. We're seeing attacks continue to escalate on public health officials like Dr. Tony Fauci. We're seeing attacks proliferate tied to the controversies around the origin of COVID virus. We're seeing increased exasperation and anger among the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. That's a kind of further polarization that we could do without patients is running out. And just in the last few days, big changes in national mask guidance, and we will hear more about that. And that that is now advising over the majority of counties, people that live in the majority of the counties, to return to mask use in indoor. And and in terms of uh, schools, universal use of masks in schools, we're seeing a bunch of different institutions step forward and insist on vaccinations. Zeke Emanuel put that letter together with 60 different health providers. We have the Veterans Affairs moving in that direction. Lots of employers. And we have President Biden this afternoon, we haven't heard this yet, to announce a new federal vaccination policy. So that's a long-winded way of saying, my gosh, you've come to us, Deborah, today when there's just this whirlwind of things happening. So let me start by just asking you, have we indeed entered a fundamentally new phase in this pandemic, in your view? Well, thank you, Steve. Um, A fundamentally new phase, you know, you could see what was happening around the globe. And so we saw 
and I want to thank South Africa because they did a very good job of measuring antibody levels. Those are people who got infected asymptomatically. You know, they have a very young population. So about a year ago, maybe nine months ago, they started publishing about their community levels of infection and showed some places 50, 60 percent of the community was infected. What they then reported with their new variant was that they had reinfection of those naturally infected individuals. And remember, vaccine development was based on what does the, what does our body naturally do to control this virus? And so you could see that there would be breakthrough infections because they were natural breakthrough infections as, and this is the virus's job. It wants to evolve from patient to patient to patients. If they see immune pressure, it will try to evade it. But also, most of our vaccines work this way. You know, they work by not sterilizing immunity, not preventing any infection, but preventing disease. And so what we can say right now is the vaccines are working the way they were approved. Their emergency authorization was around preventing disease. No one ever said it was going to prevent um, infections. Right. And so I thought we would always continue with that knowledge that vaccine sterilizing immunity, very difficult to achieve, and that we would continue our public health fundamentals that are very much related to global health security of prevention. Yes, we have vaccines, but there are other public health measures we can do to prevent and detection, ensuring that we're widely testing so that we can see the earliest evidence of so community we got, spread. In a way, then, a couple of things seem to have happened, just to pick up on your remarks. One is we weren't paying enough attention to what was going on in the UK and India, where the Delta was tearing through and saying to ourselves, wait a second, we're not going to be some exception to this. This is going to come come and haunt us very soon. Uh, so we kind of lapsed into a complacency and a euphoria about our the success of our vaccine coverage, failing to take account that this delta was going to come at us in some significant way. Second thing that we didn't really put out in the messaging to people: this is how vaccines really work, and as as we face these variants, they're going to test us and they're going to expose weaknesses in our defenses. And that's not abnormal. We have to sort of cope with that. And third, if we're expecting breakthroughs, we better be testing for them. <laughs> and we've let our testing lapse, as you've indicated. You know, we were doing 2 million tests a day in this country at the peak. It's now under half a million a day. In order to know where the virus is among the vaccinated, we got to test, right? We've got to now, we're now kind of so is this a fundamentally new phase? Well, it is. We, we've now entered a phase of breakthroughs, of high vaccinations, and of having to turn our attention back to those who are vaccinated and ask ourselves, well, how many of them are carrying this virus? You know, when the COVID first came onto the scene, it moved from Asia through Europe to the United States. So once we saw the Delta variant in India in December and January, I think it was all of our assumptions that it would come through Europe to the United States. It's just we have that illustration of how this yeah. virus spreads. We know that how flu spreads. And so I think the writing was on the wall. It's just we get so engrossed sometimes in our response 
and getting very much focused on that response piece that we sometimes neglect that prevent and detect piece. And I think, yes, vaccines are part of that prevent piece, but there is a constellation of public health mitigation that's needed along with vaccines. And as we see this, the worst thing that could happen at this point is vaccinated individuals become high level number of infections and they then create a new variant that may have more immune escape. Tony and I were always such a good pair because he's very much infectious disease, virology, I'm immunology. We work from both sides of the equation to really cons- really ensure that all of the bases are covered, to really make sure that we're tracking to make sure that every breakthrough is followed. And then critically, when we have breakthrough infections in a community, sequencing some of those breakthroughs to find out how this virus is evolving. We've done so much viral evolution work with HIV. There are brilliant virus evolutionists here in the country. Um, Betty Korber is one of them, but there's quite a few. Bringing them to the table to see how this is evolving, they would be able to even predict evolution at certain sites and what we can expect around evolution around critical immunogenic sites. And it's also why I was really very supportive of a subprotein subunit vaccine. When I first heard of our strategy, which was very much mRNA and vector, I knew if they worked, they would all work because they were all addressing the same epitope. But the reason I really wanted a protein subunit vaccine is for this very reason, that you want to broaden your immune response. You want to give a boost to people who have been really well-primed. And it can be made in billions of doses globally. And I think we're getting closer to those subunits. Yeah. But there were several on the table at that time. And there's others being developed. University of Texas has one that's very promising. So I think really looking again at our vaccine strategy just to make sure that we have a complementary set of vaccines that are overlapping and would be helpful as these different variants um, evolve. Tell us a bit, just in pragmatic, practical terms, what's your advice to your friends and your family right now (laughs) as we look to the fall? Well, so I'm in a unique situation. I have a multi-generational household. I have a go-we-go from a five-month-old to a 96-year-old. And I have within my extended family some pretty significant susceptibilities where I don't know how good the vaccine was in their Mm -hmm. cases for immunogenicity. From people are undergoing, you know, metastatic cancer treatment to individuals with um, Down syndrome. So as a family, and we were through this entire seven months, no one has become infected. They are very much, they may live in Texas and Erie, Pennsylvania and New Hampshire and Washington um, and California, but they all follow the same rules in Michigan because we're protecting a greater cohort. And I think, so I did send them a message this morning at like 5 a.m. These are your new guidelines (laughs) of what you need to do. So what are those? So, I mean, I never stopped masking in public places. And the reason I didn't is because when I went into the grocery store, which I did start going into again, no one had a mask on. 
And I knew 100% of the people in the in the grocery store were not vaccinated. It was just not statistically possible that those 100 people in the store were all vaccinated. So once I, you know, I'm a kind of on the ground person. I want to know what's going on the ground, happening on the ground. It's why I went out to the states to begin with, to really learn from the states. So I not only rely on data, I want qualitative data of what actually is happening at the community level. And so we didn't stop. We never stopped masking in public spaces. So I've advised them to do what I have been doing, go back to um, masking in public spaces and to make sure that they're testing because most of my family members have, I have grand nieces and I have grandchildren. We want to make sure that they're protected too. So for those in your family that are fully vaccinated, you're advising them to get weekly antigen tests? What are you advising? So it depends what your public exposure is and it mm-hmm. depends mm-hmm. what your county is. And I just want to thank the administration for continuing to put up the HHS community profile. We were able to finally get that up quietly in December. Um, it's persisted and they've done a great job in updating it and making sure. And any any member of the, well, and anywhere in the world can go on that HHS community profile and see where the virus is ex- is expanding, where the red counties are. You can see immediately where you are, what's happening around you. And So if we live in a place that is in the substantial or high zone, when you go to the COVID-19 tracker, yes, then we should be thinking about regu- yes. regular personal testing. Yes. That's what I would do if you had vulnerable family members yeah. that you had to really ensure you were protecting because I think that's critically important. I, now, what is on the website and the HHS community profile is also rising test positivity. And so mm-hmm. I really, just to reemphasize all the time, do not wait until hospitalizations start to increase in your community. When you see a rise in test positivity, that is your early warning signal that cases hospitalizations and fatalities will follow. Mitigate at the time you see test positivity rising. That We've learned that over and over again, but we often will mitigate late. I really applaud the counties who have been committed to keeping businesses open through utilizing masking in public spaces. Now, the federal government's, you know, been recently been fairly cautious about masking and vaccinations, took a position the CDC guidance May 13th about telling those who were fully vaccinated that they could do without masks triggered a, a controversy and a debate about all of this. But we're now seeing a, re, a swing back to a different set of guidances on masking, encouraging people to come back and mask if they're in these near these substantial or high zone um, and being much more assertive with respect to vaccination. We talked a little bit about that. Is this going to be sustainable, the federal government coming back in in these ways? And will people trust and believe that and respond to that favorably? Or is there going to be some blowback? We're a very big, complicated country and a you very know, divided country. I think sometimes we forget in public health what makes it unique is public And I think lots of times we look at data on a piece of paper or our computer and decide what's best. And I think what was very important to me, whether it was HIV, TB or malaria or now COVID, is to hear from the people on the ground. 
What are they confronting? What are they seeing? What is, what is the community saying? Have those community groups meetings, meet with county commissioners, meet with mayors, and really meet with college students. I learned so much from you know meeting with different groups that represented very specific concerns. And then I found if you let people express their concerns and you have that dialogue, you can have a very effective um, strategy to work together to get to the place where you both want to be. And it didn't matter if it was a Republican governor or a Democratic governor. It didn't matter if it was a Republican mayor or a Democratic mayor. I can tell you I didn't meet one that said, I don't care about the state or the city. They care very deeply about the individuals in their states and their cities. And I think listening to them about what they need is critically important. What worries me the most is I'm hearing what I heard in the 80s is people saying the problem of HIV is in those people over there doing those things. When I hear people talk about others as the unvaccinated and putting people in some kind of box that and then use somewhat negative terms to refer to them or calling this a strictly a pandemic of the unvaccinated. We don't even know that for sure in this moment because we haven't been testing enough to know how many breakthroughs there were and how much community spread from breakthroughs. So I think I really hope that we step back for a moment, get back out and engage deeply with states and communities, hear from them, have town halls, listen to people and what they need to know, because people are smart. Americans are the same Americans who have gone on Amazon and are comparing all the prices and all of the abilities of every single thing. I mean, we have millennials that can teach you amazing things. I mean, amazing things. They know how to do this in their sleep. They go on. They're integrating all of this data from all these different websites to decide what they need and what they want and what they're going to have. They can understand these complex concepts. So I think sometimes we don't give the public enough credit. Mm -hmm. They can understand these concepts. They could have understand the difference between sterilizing and disease protection. We need to really convey all the evidence behind what we're discussing to the community. And frankly, early on in the pandemic, I used information to the millennials to drive change because they were extraordinarily effective. They really helped the baby boomers understand what was going on, because sometimes we're not always quite as tech savvy. They helped the baby boomers get immunized. They can help their parents, their grandparents, and work with Gen Z to understand the complexity of this pandemic. It's not simple, but it's understandable. Recently, there's been a lot of effort undertaken by Republican pollsters like Frank Luntz, you know, partnering with Brian Castrucci from the De Beaumont Foundation. The Republican do doctors in Congress have bonded together and done PSAs. That showed some initiative and an awareness of trying to, to engage the conservative Republican. I mean, particularly, the, you know, this is an evangelical. It's off, it, the greatest resistance to vaccines is often among the younger, more rural, conservative voters, male. Now we're seeing a much more vocal action as things have worsened in the in the surge period. G Governor Ivey stepped forward. 
Governor DeSantis stepped forward, even some who were denialists earlier or some who were actively disparaging science and disparaging vaccines have done a reversal. And, okay, let's set the past aside. We still want to get to those voters through the local engagement, one-on-one engagement, but we also want them to hear from their political leaders the right sort of message. Do you think this is going to have effect is it, or is it too late to change these attitudes among those that large population that are hesitant or refusing to take vaccines? Well, I think it's really important to understand what the drivers are. And if we create kind of a monolithic, oh, it's that person or it's this person, I think each city and each county is going to be different. I think we need credible data from each of those areas so that we can respond with the right information on the right platform. If I learned anything from HIV, it's that you've got to not only get the right message with the right words, but you've got to get it on the right platform. And I, and I think we probably quite aren't quite there of getting all of it onto the right platforms with the right information. When you say that, you mean if you're going to engage with a community, have the facts at your fingertips. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm Be saying, able to engage people in And engage locally. What I really, when I was out in the field talking to people, some of the most important influencers is the local news media and the health experts in their community Mm -hmm. that they recognize and they know. And so I know it's tedious (laughs) to get to that level, but showing someone, and I think that's why it was effective to be out in the field, is they knew someone from the federal government cared enough to come to their place in the Mm -hmm. middle of their red hot zone and say, what's going on and how can we help? And I think having people show up and listen is as important as talking. Thank you. We, we referenced earlier that um, there's a gap in tests and that limits our, our knowledge of exactly how pervasive are breakthrough infections among vaccinated populations. What are the other big scientific unknowns and the big data gaps in your view right now that we need to focus on? You know, at one time we were testing almost as much as the UK mm-hmm. and we're now at half what they have tested. So in the last six months, they've sprinted past us and doubled where we haven't. But there's another thing that the UK has done extraordinarily well is sequencing. And I think we have enormous capabilities, both in our research institutions and in our commercial private sector, to engage in really proactive sequencing. Because they can both they can use sequencing as a test. Yes, I know it costs more, but imagine if we gave the uh, molecular virologist enough information to understand the rates of this evolution and the the binding kinetic changes that were evolving. And I know that sounds very technical, but it's how well that antibody and that how well that antigen binds to your receptor to get into your cell and how well that antibody binds to that Aren't same we expanding site. our genomic sequencing pretty rapidly? I mean, I know there was... Well, size- from almost nothing to, <laughs> to something, yes. But it needs to be... It, It's just not the numbers. It needs to be strategic. And that's the same thing with the testing. We need to be testing strategically. And we know what happened in HIV. We tested a lot of worried well. We need to make testing available to 
interesting of do the the group of Americans that are most likely to ex be exposed and that's often our frontline healthcare workers our frontline first responders our community college students you know if we were testing and sequencing all of our community college students we would know what was happening in that community because they're of the community and they're also available because they're coming to class at their schools so i mean looking for those intersections of access and the community i think is really critical and i think we still have work to do to strategically test and to strategically sequence how quickly can we go back to 2 million tests. If someone today in the White House said, look, Deborah's right, we cannot, we're, we're, we're blind to what's happening here and we need individual testing and genomic sequencing on a much bigger scale, let's do it. How quickly could we get back to 2 million tests today? Well, I'm hoping we could go to 4 million, but yes, I think we can get to, to back to 2 million quickly because I just, the private sector unbelievably stood up in this. So when we had the first meeting with all of the diagnostic laboratory heads and the developers, test developers, on the 4th of March, we had tests rolling off the line within three weeks. So we know how quickly they can mobilize. There needs to be more mobilization around therapeutics because mm -hmm. there's been a law in the development of therapeutics. We, we now need, have the 3.2 billion. Yes, but we need it, you know, we need it yesterday. So we need really, we need a convening again yeah. of all of the private sector groups working on therapeutics, both the antivirals and the monoclonals and making sure that they're polyclonal monoclonals in there. Um, it's a cocktail and not just a single monoclonal. And then really pushing forward more rapid additional vaccines. And I know people think, well, what we have is great. It is great. And I'm not the least bit saying anything that's not great about our current vaccines. But ensuring that we can boost a different sector of the immune response or expand on that sector by using a different booster could be very advantageous. And I think um, working to see whether we can get some of these subunit vaccines quickly, um, EUA'd, and really looking at the other researchers that have other promising subunit vaccines available. Subunit vaccines are so easy because we have a great safety profile and they're adjuvanted often with adjuvants that have been used in millions of people. So mm -hmm. there's not really a question. And you can do an immunologic bridge. You don't have to do a full phase three trial all over again. And we're going to see Novavax soon, aren't we? Yes. But I think what I'm sure the administration is working on right now is how to strategically use Novavax. Would that be the best third shot, particularly among the elderly or the vulnerable? And that's a really open question. I don't have the answer to that, but they can get the answer to that pretty quickly. Because remember, we immunized all of our nursing homes. The federal government supported that. Well, now the federal government could go back, measure antibody levels across the nursing homes as a cohort of surveillance just to get an idea of what their immunogenicity was and then come back with a safe booster like a subunit or even messenger RNA and see where as a cohort they go. Because in these phase three trials, our most vulnerable don't often enroll in phase three trials because they don't have access. They're either in nursing homes, they're in memory care, or they're undergoing cancer chemotherapy and would not go out of the house. So we don't really have insight into how immunogenic the vaccines are in those particularly vulnerable cohorts. Let's talk uh, just briefly about HIV-AIDS in America. 
You're a great ex HIV expert. You've dedicated 40 years of your career to this. We know that this disease, uh, the interaction of these two diseases is particularly dangerous for those living with HIV. I wanted you to say a word about that. What do we know? It's also been disruptive of prevention programs, of enrollments, um, and not just here, but elsewhere. But let's talk about America. We had in the Trump administration the EHE, the Ending HIV AIDS Epidemic Program, focused on, I think it was 48 different counties and jurisdictions and rural, seven states and rural, which was a very innovative and promising effort. That was disrupted by the COVID. Tell us your view of where, where do things, how do you, when you think about HIV in America, what are, you, what are you seeing in terms of resilience? What are you seeing in terms of real vulnerability and danger? Well, the one thing that we have now in the United States and we have around the globe are highly sophisticated advocacy groups. And I think calling them in or getting them on a Zoom call and really talking to them about what they're seeing in their community is absolutely key. Has PrEP use changed, which is preventing infections? Has viral suppression changed? What are, what are they dealing with from mental health issues when their support groups were so critical and they really um, don't have that same access that they had? I would tell you in March what I would have loved to have done if I wasn't so worried about their potential risk to COVID-19, I would have convened them immediately to say, help me with community outreach, because I think they are our experts in how to do really broad-based community outreach, both in rural and inner city areas. And they've learned that over the decades. And, and I think they're a really key group to teach us how to get the right message onto the right platform to reach the right individuals. And I think they, they know how to do that, and we should be tapping into them. I I was so worried about COVID and HIV. I didn't really, I wanted them sheltering in place, to be frank. But I think they have a lot to teach us that we can learn from. And they have they are highly sophisticated and able to really zero in on the communities and what the communities need. And I think hearing from them about what is needed right now to jumpstart our HIV response is key. Sometimes we think we can't walk and chew gum. I know we can. I know we can combat our other health program problems. And this is when we should be talking about them. We should be talking about obesity and diabetes and hypertension and the metrics we need. Now that we've learned that you can measure things and you can get people to report, we should never accept again five-year data. We should require the minimum of really quarterly or six-month data to really look at the impact that our programs are having domestically. Are you afraid that the progress that's been made in the United States is at risk? Progress with HIV or progress mm -hmm. with, with COVID? HIV. With HIV. I, I will tell you, I don't know because I haven't listened enough. And I think that's really the key right now is to really be listening about what the issues are right now. We know that there are groups that were significantly negatively impacted economically, which we know from Housing Works and we know from other really key service provider groups that comprehensive structural responses are key. 
um, in preventing and also ensuring long-term viral suppression. And so if people have lost housing or people are malnourished or people don't have access in the same way they had previously to their, their health providers through the public clinic systems or other clinics, that could have an extremely detrimental uh, impact because we know how many young young men of color that put at risk. So really understanding that and really delving into that will be really critically important. I have a friend in Virginia who serves about a thousand people living with HIV. And she's emphasized since early on that depression has become a huge issue, economic instability, loss of income, loss of housing, even with even with all the provisions to protect folks that are renters and a lack of access to services for, for the mental health and the supports needed. So I, I really worry when, the, when it becomes possible to see more clearly what's going on. So far, we don't have a very, a, a very easy way to find out. It's through talking to people like this. Well, imagine the anxiety level. This is a, a cohort of individuals who had to get the courage to go forward and get tested for yeah. HIV, had to define what that meant within their in their life and their, their progress. Unfortunately, our drugs are terrific, but it's still medication you're taking continuously. And they have been coping with that level of anxiety of a long-term infectious disease. And then we layer on the acute anxiety of everything you just described economic instability, how am I going to get my medications, what about my partners, what about my support group, what about my ability to just express that this is taking me back to that first HIV diagnosis and all of that anxiety. And and I think that's why I rail so much when we start talking about those and them that we're back to. <laughs> I mean, that was very traumatic for me in the 80s, particularly within the military. And I just want us to step back and be really understanding that people need, we need to listen to what people's reasons are because everybody will have one. And then we want to make sure that we are putting things forward in a way that resonates with those individuals. This is on us, not on them. And it's on us to figure out how to fix it. We ask our guests at the close of all of these, these episodes, and this has been a wonderful one, and thank you so much for being so generous and, and open in sharing your thoughts. We ask everyone to, to, to leave with us your thought on where do you get the greatest hope and optimism now, looking ahead to where we are. I think we've learned so much. Well, I personally have learned so much in this last 17 months or so, and I think we should never accept less than what we were able to do in this instance. And that's what gives me hope. We should never accept that flu is diagnosed symptomatically. We should never accept that infectious disease don't have definitive diagnoses. We should never accept that communities are not adequately supported to deal with and address comorbidities in that a community. And we should never accept that it takes us five years to get to a therapeutic or five years to a vaccine. We have seen what is possible when we work together in unique partnerships, all striving in the same way. And I think that's what was heartening to me. The examples that I have seen around the country 
of innovation that was created to save more lives gives me great hope, not only for combating this pandemic, but really improving the health of the country. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for all you've done in both HIV and COVID response. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. Always good to see yourself and your fabulous staff. Thank you. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Bulver and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.